The only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. Five, four, three, two, one. It is a great pleasure to be here with Annalene Newitz, uh, recording this episode, episode number 22, I believe, of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for the Human Imagination Studies uh, we do at UCSD. It's one of the few, if only, a podcast in the UC system. And we're really delighted to have guests like Anna Leon because you really embody the the living spirit of our of our uh, prototype uh, founder, who namesake of the center, Arthur C. Clarke, and that you are one of the uh, you know foremost science fiction authors who's also very well versed in in hard science, science fact as well as science fiction. So welcome, Anna Lee. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So last week you were on campus down here and you were participating in an event called uh, Your Dystopia Has Been Cancelled. And this podcast was really supposed to be filmed last week on the day that you were here in San Diego. But uh, in addition to the dystopia, your flight got canceled. So just it did, exp- yes. <laughs> explaining, <laughs> Happens a lot. <laughs> uh, for my audience where, what, what actually happened and why we didn't get to to uh, precede the event with the with the podcast. But nevertheless, you can find Annalise's entire um, entire lecture and, and presentation from the Clark Center uh, filmed last week on our YouTube channel, Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. I want to introduce Anna Lee, just for the few of you who may not know who she is, quite uh, renowned in many different circles, and I think that's what your kind of polymathematical nature is what really intrigues me about you. Uh, Anna Lee Newitz writes science fiction and nonfiction. She's the author of the novel Autonomous, nominated for the Nebula and Locus Awards. And <clears throat> she won the Lambda Literary Award. As a science journalist, she's written for the Washington Post, Slate, Ars Technica, The New Yorker, and The Atlantic, among others. She is also the co-host of the podcast, Our Opinions Are Correct. She was the founder of io9, which is an extremely uh, popular site online, and she served as the editor-in-chief of Gizmodo. Uh, Really phenomenal. Uh, One thing we're going to talk about today is not only her current uh, novel, Autonomous, but her upcoming novel and even uh, a work of science nonfiction coming after that. Uh, So there's really no stopping Anna Lee, it seems. Uh, and so I wanted to uh, start off with um, with kind of a little deep dive, if you will, for for those of us who are writers, aspiring writers, etc. Um, how you actually create uh, worlds in a, in a book like Autonomous that you create uh, you create entire scenarios, futures, and visualizations of the future that are very crisp and, and realistic. And yet, um, that's a skill that's very far removed from, there are very very few writers who can switch between nonfiction and fiction so effortlessly. So what, how do you accomplish that? How do you, uh, you know, is there a way that your nonfiction training as a science journalist, et cetera, that informs it? Or is it completely different skill sets and you're just unique and we should just clone you? (laughs) Which we can do here. Um, We can do that. Well, feel free to clone me. That sounds (laughs) interesting. Um, uh, But... You know, it really is the case that I'm using kind of the same skill set, I, I feel like, because uh, especially in Autonomous, like a lot of the world building in that came directly out of uh, a book that I had done previously, a nonfiction book about uh, how humans might survive a mass extinction using uh, technology, green technology, and a lot of other things. Um, and also just the work that I've done over the past 
you know, 15 years uh, covering technology and especially covering hacking um, and covering biotechnology. Um, there's a lot of characters in the novel who are hackers or one of the characters is a robot who, of course, can naturally uh, break into systems uh, because, you know, she just uses her brain to connect up to the system and tries to figure out a way to fool it. Um, and so, you know, I, I approach fiction often the same way I do nonfiction. I interview a lot of scientists, um, social scientists as well and try to get, I, I want my science to be as accurate as possible. I think that's fun. And fiction writers will often talk about how um, one of the best things about fiction in some ways is having constraints on what you're doing. Of course, there's the joy of making up whatever shit you want, which <laughs> is delightful, but it's also fun to have some boundaries so that you can, that helps you get more creative. And so for me, the boundary is often can I make this feel plausible? Is this based on technology that's happening, that's being developed now, and that might plausibly go in this direction? Of course, you can't predict what's going to happen in 150 years. There's a million black swans that could happen. There's the three-body problem. We just don't know uh, what's going to um, really happen. But we can make educated guesses. And oftentimes those, oftentimes, those educated guesses come from looking at history and looking at how technology has developed over time and kind of saying, all right, we see certain ways that it goes. Governments will intervene in this way. Uh, people will take up the technology and do things they're not supposed to with it, which is my favorite part to when people do that. Um, and so I, I definitely, I find that what happens is um, I'll do a certain amount of nonfiction and then I get a hankering to kind of take it into the fictional arena um, and then vice versa. Like I'll get sick of doing fiction and I'm like, God, I just want to interview a million scientists and and, and present what they've learned. So, mm -hmm. um, so it's good for me cause I can kind of switch back and forth. Can you have elements of both, uh, you know, in writing nonfiction, you know, I often felt like I could manipulate past history for people, especially that are dead <laughs> by kind of <laughs> putting my mind in the, in the mind of, of these historical figures and trying to, you know, analyze them, uh, psychoanalytically. But um, but do you feel like when you're doing uh, a fictional sequence that you're training as a journalist, for example, I mean, are you visualizing it as a narrator, uh, you know, in, in that perspective? Like, what would it be like to be a journalist in an alternative future, uh, uh, you know, happening as you do an autonomous or maybe in the deep past as you're doing for your upcoming novel? How did, can you can you switch into the kind of journalistic mode in a fictional setting or are they basically non overlapping? I think you can, um, for sure. And I actually have written, I did write a short story that was just a fake uh, nonfiction science piece of work of science journalism, um, which was about uh, how scientists discover how to communicate with ants. Mm -hmm. And I just wrote it as like a future journalist covering this discovery and talking to the different uh, scientists who'd worked on it and stuff like that. Uh, and that was really fun because uh, I got to just pretend that I was writing journalism. And so there's some things that you don't have to do when you're writing journalism that you do when you're writing fiction. So it's like, oh, I don't really have to develop this character. <laughs> that's easy. <laughs> so that's that's delightful. Um, so I think you can. And I definitely um, in my fiction, even when I'm not pretending to be a journalist, um, I like to get I like my visuals to help readers understand how science is being done. And mm -hmm. so oftentimes, like when I was doing autonomous, um, I talked to some neuroscientists about just if you were looking at neurons um, changing, what does that look like? Is it fast? Can you see them doing it? What is that, you know, what do you see when you look through the microscope? And they told me, and I put that in the book, 
um, I mean, the characters are looking at a hologram instead of looking through a microscope, but it's the same thing. It's just mm -hmm. projected what the microscope is seeing. And, and indeed, you can see neurons changing in real time, um, growing and, and forming connections, So, which is pretty creepy and awesome. <laughs> um, and, and so, yeah, I like to have journalistic detail. Like, I like to have, um, you know, readers kind of come away with a sense that things are more complicated than you might expect. And that's, of course, the job of science journalism a lot of the time is to say like, well, you thought the black holes work like this, but actually mm -hmm. no one really <laughs> agrees, but we do have a picture. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, that was today's news. Everybody's excited. That's so. right. The first black hole selfie. Which, uh, <laughs> if only it were selfie, that would be amazing. <laughs> that would cost the NSF a lot more money than this. <laughs> yeah. Um, Looking forward to that. <laughs> so um, I've, I've heard it said, you know, that, that science fiction writers often will, will contend that, you know, science, deep science fiction in the future is really just kind of a manifestation of what either they wish would happen today or maybe what's even happening today. I mean, Jack and your and, and autonomous is kind of, you know, part past, part future in that, you know, it's kind of like Robin Hood in some ways, anti-hero, uh, but also looking deep forward in the future. But these are all events that are happening now with, you know, medication costs rising and sort of the, the need, the urgency is sort of happening now. And yet you're kind of fantasizing about the future. So um, what do you see in that continuum? Do you feel like, you know, science fiction in the deep future is really an expression of, you know, either the author or the, the audience's desires for what's happening today? Or is it something, you know, that you're really trying to speculate on? Because if it's so speculative, I feel like the audience couldn't recognize it. And yet they relate so viscerally to your, I mean, I read some of your thousand plus reviews and people really relate, you know, as if these are real people and, you know, yeah, knows, maybe they will grad be someday. students. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's it. We'll get into um, uh, yeah, I mean, I I think of my work and I think of most science fiction work as being reflections of the present. And mm -hmm. so either it's a way of grappling with issues in the present at a, at a distance um, or sometimes it's really I mean, like a lot of science fiction authors like William Gibson, their work is set essentially at the very edge of the present. You know, it's something that is actually happening, but kind of just maybe 10 minutes out mm -hmm. um and although not in his newer novels of course he's he's also time traveling in those so um so he's looking further in the future so i, I that is my approach to it certainly other science fiction writers will say that that's not what they're doing um and of course any book that you write is going to partly be a reflection of your fears and hopes so I mean, that's why I have a an honorable pirate who is trying to do good um, and hackers who are trying to do good, because that's kind of my always been my perspective on it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was funny because the whole Martin Shkreli scandal hit after I was done with the book. Um, and it was actually like right when the book was coming out that he was um kind of coming up on charges and stuff and people kept saying like oh it's about martin shkreli and i was like well it is but <laughs> um it's really just about corruption in the pharmaceutical industry and that's what drives our scientist character jack to go um to go rogue and to, mm -hmm. to try to uh, bring medicines to people who can't afford it because the system is so out of control mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I heard it said recently in, in relation to Martin Screlly. I think that's how you pronounce his name, though. Yeah, let, let's go with that. I think he's in solitary <laughs> confinement now, so I don't, I don't know if it makes a big difference. But uh, he's, he's not going to be seeing this most likely, uh, <laughs> unless he's got a real. This life. is his favorite podcast. <laughs> I know. Well, it's into the impossible. So now into the impossible is his escape route, also. Uh, <laughs> so um, yeah, I heard it said once. Maybe it was by him or, or somebody affiliated his legal team, you know, Michael Avenatti or somebody. But it, it said something like, you know. Like they shouldn't charge so much money. You know, these pills cost 25 cents. And, and someone responded, no, the first pill cost $2 billion. The next one cost 25 cents. Uh, <laughs> but, but uh, it's, it, be sort of disheartening if some of these, you know, kind of manipulations, monopolies, et cetera, continue into, you know, the year 2044, 2144 is the novel uh, presents. Mm-hmm. But um, so, you know, I want to talk now a little bit more about what your, um, uh, your next, your next book, your next novel, really is is a dive into the past, and then the nonfiction work you're working on that you briefly mentioned last week and and before we came on the podcast today, is dealing with their you know much far distant past. So I wonder if we can get into those, uh, and and uh, for for a little bit and talk about the difference in writing kind of historical. Um, you know, almost fan nonfiction and fan fiction in a certain sense. Um, for the for the audience, maybe you can uh, discuss a little bit about the the theme of your of your upcoming book, which is uh, going to be out in uh, September, called "The Future of Another Timeline." And we'll want to get you back uh, on the podcast and at UCSD for that. But uh, sure. can you give a brief uh, description of that, as you did for the audience last week, and then we can get into the differences between writing about past fiction and then future fiction and and we can kind of explore the differences between the two sounds good um so future of another timeline is a time travel novel and um and we can talk about that too how how do you write a hard science time travel (laughs) novel turns out no (laughs) um and i actually you know being a good journalist i i interviewed a couple of uh physicists um before I started and was like, okay, so what's the most scientific way I could do this? And they both very gently said, this is a literary device. This is not science. <laughs> so, but I talked a lot to Sean Carroll, who's down there near you guys yeah. at um, yeah, Caltech. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, he, uh, he gave me some good ideas for how I could do it that wouldn't be just egregiously terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are wormholes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, obligatory and, wormholes. Yeah, yeah, and it's and and we I, I came up with some stuff with Sean that uh, you know could could be true mm-hmm. in <laughs> sort of physical sciences, but is obviously but is not something that we know about today. So um, so it's about a group of activists who are also professors at UCLA because the UC system rules and they are trying to change events in history to, um, to basically make, uh, to basically help vulnerable groups, people who they think need, uh, who, you know, have been neglected historically or who are suffering in the present. So, uh, in the case of the main character, she's going back to the 19th century trying to change um, the culture at that time so that abortion is legal because she lives in a timeline where abortion is not legal in the United States. And so for her, this is a very important political issue. And so she's trying to, she's decided that there's some events that occurred in the 19th century that kind of set us on this course. Um, And we're only in one timeline. Mm -hmm. So if she changes the timeline, everybody in the United States would gain access to the benefit or the not the benefit. You know, if she screws things up, they'll the also be, messed, right, they'll be screwed over. So, um, so it was, uh, it was really fun to do the world building. Although I had promised myself at some point that I would never do a time travel novel because they are so tough. 
Um, and so there was a lot of world building at, at the outset where I was trying to figure out all the timeline shenanigans because they do change the timeline, um, she and her colleagues. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so yeah, and I had to do a lot of historical research too. They, the characters do go to multiple different times, but they spend most of their time either in uh, the 21st century or in the 19th century. And so I had to look up everything from like how much money a woman who was working as a seamstress might make in 1893 Chicago, which luckily there actually are records online showing uh, standard pay for actually hundreds of jobs at that time. Mm. Um, I think maybe partly because um, unions were being organized uh, quite effectively, especially in Chicago at that time. So I think there were a lot of efforts to kind of gather that data um, and so, so that, that they could have a sense of who was working and what they were making. So, um, so that was really fun and frustrating, um, trying to do all that research. And, um, you know, it's funny cause I think when people are reading the book, they're not going to be like, oh, wow, this, what an accurate amount of money that this character is making, but it's fun for me. Like, again, it's that constraint. I want the real world to have constraints, um, and, or I want my fictional world to have the constraints of the real world. So, um, but creating a past world is a lot like creating a future world, um, you know, you have some guidelines, but there's a lot of missing information. Uh, even stuff from the late 19th century, there's tons of missing information, especially the characters I was writing about, which were like uh, feminists and belly dancers and sex activists and like people who don't often make it into the annals of history. And, um, and historians have tried to unbury the histories of some of these women, but, um, you know, we're not, we don't have a lot to go on. And so, um, so it's, it's, there's a lot of making shit up, you know, mm -hmm. just the way you do with the future where you have some information about where you think things might go based on the way the world is now, but then you kind of have to fill in the gaps. And so with fiction, I feel no guilt at all. I'm just like, Hey, this is fiction. I'm just making stuff up. Mm -hmm. Maybe they did this. Like, I don't know. Um, but when I'm doing nonfiction, I, have, I actually have a lot of guilt when I'm trying to recreate life 9,000 years ago during the Neolithic. I'm like, okay, how do I base, you know, I have to do some speculation, but I want every step of the way, every piece of speculation to be based on something someone's found at a dig, something that, you know, at least two or three different scientists kind of agree on, or at least kind of, you know, semi agree on. Um, and that's, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I don't feel like I can stray from the path as much when I'm doing nonfiction. Yeah, the constraints, I'm sure, are much, much greater. But then also you do have, so Andy Weir is a, I can't call him an alum of UC San Diego because he never graduated. Uh, but uh, despite kind that, of an he, alum. He, he might go on to a good career. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Uh, time will tell. Uh, but, you know, when, when he was here, you know, he's really talking about how shocking in some ways it was to do a hard science fiction um, work. And and then be mercilessly attacked in some ways, but also aided by readers in, in another sense that they could provide, you know, much more information on, you know, smelting of aluminum or uh, mm -hmm. for, his, for Artemis or, or, you know, the, the kind of communications uh, uh, codes that that Watley uses in, uh, in in the Martian. And, you know, so there is also it seems like a constraint 
for fiction authors as well, especially those of you who are trained in the hard sciences or science journalism and mm-hmm. um, sort of held to a maybe unfairly high standard. But it must not be completely liberating to work in fiction because you know that you're going to have people that, I mean, like you, if you didn't go to someone like Sean or somebody like, oh, that's completely ridiculous. But then actually doing the work as you've done, I think that gives a greater you know imprimatur to the rea- realism if it will be, you know, for for um, for readers to to uh, to, to grab onto, um, I want to talk about a theme that comes up, uh, you know, somewhat in autonomous, uh, obviously, and and maybe in the upcoming work as well, and that's you know graduate students and kind of the the the, uh, the positions that these students, you know, we're talking about, you know, almost slave like labor back in the 1800s for women, and you know, a lot of people feel like, well, graduate students are kind of modern day indentured servants in in a certain way, and as I was telling you earlier building is called the surf building that we're in now science and engineering <laughs> research facility they couldn't come up with a better acronym right no they couldn't mm-hmm. make it s-u-r-f or you know something uh unique to san diego <clears throat> but uh but it made me think about you know how you view the process of of the student you know kind of teacher relationship and that dynamic is very important to us here in a research university like ucsd in that, you know, there's kind of this almost you know, oral tradition of passing on knowledge and and collaboration between teacher and student. And and yet there's a very different role between teacher and student. So I, I wonder, you know, can you say something about your, you know, your education? I believe you were at the night school at, at MIT. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, what was that like? How did that impact your writing? And ultimately, what I want to get to from you is you're not a, you know, a faculty educator in the, in the sense um, that, that I am on a daily basis, but, you know, can you teach the skills that you've acquired? Are they, are they teachable skills in the same way we can teach electromagnetism or, you know, general relativity? Are they skills in the creative sense, in the same creative sense as, as what, what you do for a living? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, my background is I have a PhD from Berkeley uh, in American Studies, mm-hmm. and um, which is an interdisciplinary field. So I did some social science and some humanities work. And um, I originally thought that I was going to be a professor. That was like basically what I'd wanted to be like almost my whole life, which mm-hmm. is kind of a weird thing for a high school student to want. But that is what I wanted. Better than and... I really want to be an administrator. That's, yeah, that's... did not want to do that. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, and so when I was um, graduating and going out on the market, um, it was at, at a time like now where very few jobs were available, particularly for someone doing interdisciplinary work. And so I basically went out on the market simultaneously to academic for academic positions and for mm-hmm. positions in journalism. And it was easier to get a job in journalism and easier to support myself. And so basically, as soon as I Uh, had my PhD, um, I did work for a little while as an adjunct while I was kind of ramping my career up as a writer, but I've been supporting myself on writing for my whole adult life, basically. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that was because I I failed to become a (laughs) professor. Um, I did do, as you mentioned, um, the Knight Science Journalism Fellowship at MIT, which is kind of like a postdoc Mm -hmm. for uh, journalists. Um, and that was in- tremendously helpful um, in, in kind of sharpening my, my knowledge of, of science because I was sort of transitioning from writing about tech to writing about more scientific topics. And I, I feel like um, as someone who was teaching a lot, especially when I was at Berkeley, I, I worked my way through school basically by getting loans and teaching. I loved teaching. Teaching was my favorite part of being in the university other than the luxury of getting to just study stuff that I liked. 
And I really missed it a lot. That was the thing when I transitioned into journalism that I was most sad about Mm -hmm. was not having students around to talk to and um, their enthusiasm and their knowledge is so incredible. And so I try as much as I can to incorporate pedagogy into my journalism for sure. And when I was running io9 for many years, it was very similar to a classroom because there's so many comments. So you'd wade into the comment forum and it was like, oh, it's like a bunch of people asking questions or having debates. And it really felt like that kind of community where I could sort of say, well, here's my opinion and here's what I've learned. And people would say, well, here's what I've learned and here's what I see. Um, And that's the best experience in a classroom is Mm -hmm. when that's happening and people are, um, uh, students are empowered Mm -hmm. to to talk about their own, um, their own discoveries. Um, But, uh, you know, I was very aware (laughs) as an, as a grad student and as a postdoc of how abused uh, most Mm -hmm. of my colleagues were, particularly in the sciences. I mean, we were abused in the humanities and social sciences just because mm. there was no money. So it was like, and well, you're at, and you're at Berkeley, job. and you're at Berkeley. Let's be honest. Just kidding. I'm just sorry. Kidding. And, and because you're at Berkeley, just kidding. Um, just kidding. <laughs> is Berkeley like especially abusive? I'm like, just teasing. There are there are one of our nemeses. There are arch rivals. <laughs> yeah, you're not even on their radar. <laughs> I, oh, thanks <laughs> like, a lot. Berkeley Emily. is like <laughs> Berkeley sees Stanford as its nemesis, which is also kind of a sad. Yeah, sad anyway, sad, whatever. Yeah. It's all sad. We're, UC is is our is like is the best. Awesome. So yes, I think we can all agree that we together do. we are strong. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was super abusive, and like I said, especially in the sciences where people really had to like they were dependent on their professors for everything. Yeah. Whereas we, like I said, there was nothing at stake. There was no money. Like we weren't going <laughs> to get any fancy ass like lab position. Um, so mm-hmm. there were a few people who who did have relationships like that with professors, like at, at a very high level, um, you know, were dependent on them for for fellowships and stuff. And there was just rampant abuse. There was sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. There was just regular harassment of just, you know, go get my dry cleaning kind of stuff. Um, I had a professor who was trying to get me to do data entry at his house. And mm. so I would just go over to his house and like he would wander around in his robe and it was like, dude, <laughs> like, professors in ro- male professors in robes. This is an, uh, a very, it's like a weird, and yeah, it wasn't, and I don't mean to say that it was like a harassment thing. It was just like creepy and, and inappropriate. Oh, like don't have your student come to your house. Like it just feels a, like you're a servant, you know, and in it's a like, robe is creepy. And there's, it's impossible to be in a robe and not seem creepy. Okay. Yeah. And it no, was like, even other though he faculty was a, a, members out there perfectly nice guy but it was it was just you know that kind of behavior assuming that the student is just kind of at your beck and call and um and so that was i poured a lot of angst about those experiences into autonomous Mm -hmm. where one of the characters is a grad student who's a robot um whose professor ports him to a printer so like puts his brain into a printer Mm -hmm. and is like oh well one of these days i'll I'll hook him up with an antenna so he can access the network that way. But for now, he just has speakers and you can talk to him. Um, and uh, it's it's pretty, you know, it's obviously a metaphor. Yeah, it's commoditizing, <laughs> you know, humanity, right? Yes. <laughs> Very troubling. So, uh, but on that theme, you know, just so academia is imperfect. Uh, most systems are imperfect. For and, sure. And yet we do have, you know, I always say, you know, teaching is an act of love, you know, hopefully purely platonic love, uh, you know, not in robes. And and uh, <laughs> but it is, you know, it's this expression of vulnerability and and also, you know, asymmetry in some sense. Um, you know, you hope the teacher knows more than the student. Right. And in, in some sense. And that's natural. And then in science, I always point out the word scientist in Russian, at least as far as I'm told, means a person who was taught. 
And Mm -hmm. that really conveys, you know, kind of this this tradition that we're in that the ultimate expression of science is to teach. And then the obligation, you know, corollary to that is that you have to become a teacher. And so we, we exhibit a lot of that in the lab. I have nine graduate students. And um, and this is something that's very important to them. The grad students or the postdocs teach the grad students. Grad students teach the undergrads. They're all kind of like force multipliers while I'm, <laughs> while I'm at the faculty club with my brandy snifter. No, no, I don't. Do mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> well, one of the students brings you pillows. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It enters data for me. Uh, but the uh, but the ultimate, you know, kind of expression of love is that you do the person leaves. Right. You know, if you have children, I have children now and, you know, kind of looking uh, nostalgically at back when they needed me more in some sense, but also hopefully hopeful that they'll need me less in the future. Right. Um, so when you, when you've been in that, and I don't know if this is something featured at night, but you know, kind of the creative process and you, you talk a lot, obviously there's a lot about human equivalent, uh, artificial intelligence. Do you think that artificial intelligence is a threat to the traditional academic? I mean, what I do has not changed substantively in a thousand years, you know, basically a sage on a stage, you know, talking to rapt audiences, uh, you know, that really hasn't changed. But I think with the advent of AI, I mean, why should students listen to me? And say, I mean, you don't know me very well, but but uh, why should they listen to me instead of, you know, taking a class with, uh, you know, here's Galileo's dialogue on two world systems. Right. Why should they listen to me when an AI will soon replace me and and be much more authentic, visceral and and maybe authentic? Uh, do you see that happening and maybe taking away uh, along so concomitantly this oppression of students, you know, because an AI hopefully won't, won't have this ability to oppress in the way that you've unfortunately had to encounter. Well, I think if future AIs, if we ever evolve a human equivalent AI, if they're anything like the kind of machine learning algorithms we have now, they're going to have all the same problems that we have right so they'll be a pre- they'll they'll be oppressing their students and making their postdocs uh you know do their research for them for no credit and stuff like that um so i think you know it's it's interesting because i think what's happening with machine learning in higher education right now it seems like where it would be going would be toward just um kind of aiding professors, like it might be something where you would be replacing graders, like so you might have some kind of algorithm that can grade a paper, which is kind of terrifying because what you really want when somebody writes a paper or a, a thesis or some kind of you know analysis is you actually want a human to kind of interact with it. Um, but I could easily see it being, I mean, at a lot of universities, and I'm sure San Diego as well, you know, there's these weeder courses that are enormous and students are producing, you know, essay questions during, um, you know, answers to essay questions and things. And you have grad students grading them and, you know, it would be great if you could just replace them with a machine, right? And just, you know, Scantron it kind of, except now you're doing Scantron type stuff for for actually, you know, written work. Um, So I could see that happening. Will you be replaced with a robot? I don't know. You know, maybe you'll have robot teaching assistants, like I said. But like, I think, I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting about, um, you know, writing from people like Brad DeLong, who's an economist who's thought a lot about automation, is that he, he and a lot of other economists feel that as as we automate a lot of things, we're also going to start hypervaluing um, human labor around things like teaching and caretaking and emotional labor uh, that we aren't really sure that robots can do. And so I could see teachers, I mean, imagine that, teachers becoming actually more valued, like, Mm -hmm. and maybe paid what they're 
they deserve to be paid. <laughs> that would be kind of amazing. Um, so yeah, I'm not too worried about it right now, um, but mm -hmm. I, I could see automation creeping in for sure. Great. So we just have a couple minutes left. I, I always mm -hmm. like to get um, people's opinions and maybe get to know them a little bit better by asking uh, a not so personal question. But it, but in your case, I think I want to tie it to the mix of, of genre subgroups that you work in, which is, you know, past uh, uh, fiction and future fiction, science fiction. Uh, and that is, you know, if somebody comes up to you and tells you, Annalie, I've got some good news and some bad news, which mm -hmm. do you want to hear first and why? I guess I want to hear the bad news first because <laughs> that way the good news will feel more hopeful. Yes, <laughs> that sounds good to me. So, so um, I, I, as long as I don't have to just like only hear one kind of news, which would be like reading Facebook, I guess. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, I think that makes you an optimist, but I'm not sure. We we can uh, send it over to our colleagues in psychiatry. Um, <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> and that's um, so I just want to ask the you know kind of a final question in, in relation to these um, two works of fiction, and then as I said, when you uh, when your book about ancient cities is out, I definitely want to have you connect you to some of our wonderful archaeologists here that work on a lot of um, uh, advanced uh, imaging of uh, archaeological sites and that will be uh, do you have a publication date or a notion of when that will be out um so it's coming out from norton um and it will publisher, probably be out in 2020 um mm -hmm. that's our plan uh right. and my editor would really like that if that were to happen so uh -huh. <laughs> um, your, that's what we're your, aiming for is 2020 who's your so. editor at norton um, I'm working with, um, uh, do we, ha I mean, no, we don't have to. <laughs> we, who are we, why are we getting into this? <laughs> no, cause I was, the, is are we going to call book. up my editor? I'm actually, I'm really oh, like, I know when she's going to, she, she wants to see what you're doing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, we'll, I don't we'll want you to know out. who my editor is. All right, fine. <laughs> um, so if you could travel to either the future of one of your novels or to the past, uh, which would that, which would you prefer to do? And, and, and then I'll have a follow up to that, but, but would you prefer to go back or to go in the future? You can only do one. Um, I guess, um, I, uh, well, because I write a lot about archaeology, I think I would want to go to the past mm -hmm. um, and I would want to visit some of the places that I'm writing about and find out what the hell actually was going on because uh -huh. there's so many mysteries like that we just don't know and it's super annoying. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'd really like to visit Cahokia, which um, was like a really big city about a thousand years ago in Southern Illinois. It's, it's right uh, near East St. Louis mm -hmm. um, and that would be like especially if I could actually speak the language, I would love to go mm. find out what they were up to. Very cool. Oh, that's excellent. So, well, that basically uh, subsumes my next question, which was, you know, if you could go somewhere in a fiction, a non-fictional setting, would you go in, in, in your works? And it sounds like you'd like to go to Cahokia, if I'm pronouncing I want to go to Cahokia. If that's I were right. to go to a place in a fictional work, um, I guess, I mean, in my upcoming novel, the characters, they go to all real locations, but they go to Petra, um, mm -hmm. which is called sure. Rakhmu in this version of history because they're not colonized by the Greeks. So, uh -huh. um, so yeah, that would be pretty fun. That was in the Nabataean Empire, in case you... Uh -huh. 
need to Scoring get some home, time right? machine action. Yeah, <laughs> I like the Nab- Nabataean Giants. They're my favorite baseball team. Uh, speaking, uh, well, <laughs> they were great, right? Yeah, like right. two thousand years ago, they were on top of it. <laughs> they had that winning streak. They had that uh, global series uh, champions. Uh, Annalise, mm-hmm. it's been a real pleasure uh, speaking with you uh, from up north. I'm glad you made the time, and thank you so much for coming down last week. I hope we'll have you down here again. I'd love to. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And sorry, I didn't want to out my editor. Don't worry about that. Are people going to email him and be like, when is her book coming? (laughs) They don't even know who he is. We'll keep it. We'll keep it just between us. We, we, our audience is growing, but it's not that. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. The only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. Five, four, three,